0: So I can be on a scene and say, you know, I'm not comfortable with what I'm seeing here. I don't think it matches up with uh, the time frame of either last seen alive or maybe um, the way uh, it was reported that the decedent was found. It's not adding up. You know, I'm going to take additional photos and I may need a doctor to report out with me to confirm my suspicions.
1: What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the half-hour intern. In today's episode, I interview Danine Lorenzo, who is a medical-legal death investigator. So the very first question I ask her out the gate is, what's the difference between that and being a coroner and being a forensic pathologist? So I'm not really going to ruin that for you because that'll be answered in just a second. And actually, you know what? This entire interview is super interesting, so I'm just not going to ruin anything. Without further ado, here is medical-legal death investigator. Deneen, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I am freaking stoked to interview you. This is going to be so cool. Um, Why don't we start out with what is the difference between you, a coroner, and a forensic pathologist? I think that coroner and forensic pathologist are kind of more common quote-unquote common job names that people will have heard when you wrote in and I said, and I read medico-legal death investigator, I was like, dang, I I mean, I clearly the death investigator part makes sense, but I don't know the medico-legal part, so how do you separate those three jobs and the differences?
0: Sure. A coroner is usually an elected official. Um, Sometimes they can be a doctor, sometimes they are not, Um, and With a a forensic pathologist, which is whom I work for, Um, they are clearly a trained MD and uh, they perform the autopsies, whereas a coroner will send them out um, and not necessarily do them themselves. Um, And then my job and my role is almost a liaison between a forensic pathologist, the family and law enforcement. Um, so my main role is to d- determine jurisdiction um, and and knowing if this is truly a medical examiner's case or falls under the Florida State Statute 406 uh, that makes it our case. So I determine that. And I also uh, help in determining uh, manner of death. Um, the doctor clearly will determine cause of death. And I help them with manner.
1: Interesting. So when you're determining the manner of death, I assume a lot of times that will dictate who it's going to go to next after you. So that's part of the reason why you have to do that.
0: That's correct. Um, and and we have a unique way of doing that. You know, we have um, a lot of training uh, behind us, um, and we have certainly um, colleagues. That have been there longer. So, if we are on a scene that um, maybe is unusual to us, or we feel something is not quite as um, explained to us, or the circumstances do not fit what we're seeing, um, we have valuable resources. We certainly can call um, our physician. Um, And there are five. We have a chief medical examiner as well as a deputy chief and then three others. And we also have a fellow that um, is, you know, um, they rotate in and out. So we have good resources and we also have the other investigators and um, that have years of knowledge uh, on scene. So I certainly can be on a scene and call one of them as a resource and say, you know, I'm not comfortable with what I'm seeing here. I don't think it matches up with uh, the time frame of either last seen alive or maybe um, the way uh, it was reported that the decedent was found and I'm not comfortable with, you know, it's not adding up. It doesn't look uh, or appear to be what it is, um, certainly I'll call them, uh, put them on notice that, um, you know, I'm going to take additional photos. And and if, if possible, I may need a doctor to report out with me to confirm my suspicions.
1: Oh, my gosh. I'm uh, like, I'm just so excited to keep talking about this. I it, it, like... It's just so exciting, all the things that you're saying, which I almost feel bad saying because you're talking about deaths and people that have died, but there's such like the idea that there can be this mystery element to it sometimes is uh is just so crazy and so interesting, so you yourself do not need to be an m d to be a medical legal death investigator
0: that is correct um my background personally um I have a bachelor's in public health um I have a medical transcription background from way back. So I'm com- comfortable with terminology. Um, and what happened, I was finishing my degree kind of later in life. Um, I was a stay at home mom for most of, most of my years and thought, well, my kids are d- independent. I want to get back into this, uh, you know, I want to finish my degree and um, started going back to school slowly, but surely. And, um, and then I realized I'm going to be in my 40s, not have any experience, and who will hire me with a degree only. Yeah. So, um, a volunteer internship um, came about at when I was at University of South Florida. Um, I was taking an infectious, emerging infectious d- disease class, and um, they offered me. I went and interviewed um, Hillsborough County um asked me to come on. And I was there about nine months as an intern, um, and then they offered me a part-time investigative position. When that came um, to fruition, I stayed there about um, about nine months as, as a part-timer. And then when they had the funding to get another full-time investigator, um, certainly they came to me and offered me the position you know, um, to put in perspective, there were 900 applicants for that one job. Um, I was going to say, I
1: can't believe the the way that this all happened for you, because it, you were saying there's only 2,500 of you in the entire country, in the entire United States, there's 2,500 of you.
0: That's correct. And that's so incredible. once, yeah. So once they, um, brought me on, it takes about a year to train. Um, and then, they give you all the resources, um, send you to St. Louis. There is, um, only one place, um, that teaches a course in medical legal death investigation that is in St. Louis University there. And they sent us, um, they send you for a week. You hear from detectives, um, women who have been in, and men who have been in this business, uh, for years when it, Really, first started, and then um, you, you come back to your area and you proctor at your university um, and take a certification test, um, which kind of points on um, lividity, rigor, um, uh, suicide, homicide, uh, evidence collection. Um, entomology. All those things come into uh, our job, and we have to have full knowledge of those. Um, And then once you're certified, you're certified. You keep up those accreditations over the years um, by doing certain things and um, attending certain conventions and things to keep your knowledge up.
1: That is awesome. Do you feel like you were just talking about all the the things that you need to kind of immerse yourself in? Were you kind of like hardened to this stuff right off the bat or is it something you've become more hardened to like with time on the job i I mean like seeing dead bodies and all that
0: i think at first there was um some nervousness um in the beginning um when i originally was there for the volunteer internship they took me on a complete tour and um we went through the morgue and um there were autopsies ongoing at the time and Not ever having seen that before, I think there was some nervousness or some butterflies to, is this something that I can do? Is this something I'm comfortable with? And um, uh, we did the walkthrough and I felt very comfortable. And I think because it's such a clinical, your mind thinks so clinically, um, I'm tasked to do a job that's extremely important. And you focus in on those clinical issues that you need to be thinking about.
1: It's interesting because, um, yeah, in my former life as a medical device rep, I got to do some some training at one of my companies where we uh, were in for some autopsy type stuff as well. And in addition to being in on surgeries, uh, like very regularly, but in a, sur- in a surgery, as I mentioned before in the show, it's like most of the body's covered up. It's c- a completely clinical setting, like you were just talking about. And then even with an autopsy, it's, it's a very, very clinical setting. The thing that I, I would imagine is much more disquieting is coming up on a dead body. Like out in the world, you know, not on a stainless steel table, but uh, yes. like just out in like a ditch somewhere or, you know, inside yes. someone's apartment.
0: Yes, we are briefed. Um, we do take a call. um you know, there are other investigators in the, in the department at the time. Um, you know, there are six of us investigators, three supervisors, and we currently have two trainees. Um, so we all take calls. Um, we get calls from, um, 11 hospitals, two are level one trauma care centers, and then we have five law enforcement agencies. We have a very large county. It's a thousand square miles. So almost the state of Rhode Island size. Um, so those calls come into us. And, uh, we take all the demographic and social information. So if law enforcement calls us out to a scene, we know basically what we're responding to. Um, is how old the person is, um, where, where they are. Um, it could be a field. It could be their home. It could be, um, in the water, um, parking garage. Uh, We have many jumpers that park from high parking garages, um, the airport parking garage, for instance, and uh, responding out there. So we know um, what law enforcement sees or fire rescue sees when they get there. So we are briefed on what we are coming into when we respond to a scene. Um, I think there's a difficulty because I have children in responding to scenes where there are um, children involved. Um, We have a lot of overlay deaths in Hillsborough County where mom is co-sleeping with baby and is either exhausted or maybe possibly intoxicated and And rolls over onto baby and baby is suffocated in that way. So that's difficult because I have to examine the baby, make sure that those, that was the case and then have mother, um, do a reenactment for me with a doll, um, so that I can see how she placed the baby down, how she found the baby when she woke up, um, so that there is a clear picture of what happened.
1: So explain to us what, like, before we move on any further, in that exact specific example, how that changes anything for you. If this baby is suffocated, like, why do you need her to reenact that?
0: Because I need to know what happened. I need to know what happened when she um, first laid the baby down? Was the baby on her chest? Was the baby in the crook of her arm? Uh, was she on a couch? Was she on a mattress? Were there other children in the bed? Um, could it have been mom that actually overlaid or could it have been that the fact that maybe there was too much bedding between them or um, that, you know, um, it, it, it takes into Many, many scenarios. But is I guess, mama, why do
1: we need to know these things? Or is it you basically are sure, trying to figure right, out that I under, it's not yeah, I a murder, more or less?
0: Correct. Or correct. That there, was, that there was absolutely no intent. That when um, baby was found by mom, either cold or not breathing, or the both, um, I need to make sure that when mom found baby... Um, the lividity, which is the pooling of blood once someone passes away, matches what mom says. Mm, if, interesting. If, if baby is on her side, I need to make sure that the pooling is on the baby's side um, so that there wasn't anything recreated. Um We want to make sure that this was not a homicide and it was maybe an accidental overlay by mother, um, which is also an interesting point because um, many times we label those, um, we enter the cause of death as undetermined. um, And that is to protect mother who certainly had no intent to harm her baby.
1: Right. um,
0: And not to place blame
1: man so interesting so uh before we move on to more of the like what you're doing at the actual scene and stuff like that absolutely in general what sorts of cases are you called in on is it only things that are like kind of mystery and crime based and stuff like that or is it kind of like all deaths that are not happening in a hospital so if a Eighty-year-old uh, woman calls and says, "My husband had a heart attack and he's not breathing. I think he just passed away on the couch." You know, or like she gets home from the groceries and her husband has passed away on the couch. Do you go there for that, or it's like, well, that's an eighty-year-old man that just had a cardiac arrest. Like I don't, I don't go for that.
0: We absolutely do. Um, it is um, unattended death in residence or you know outside. Um, we respond to a natural what we believe is a natural death. so this is someone who has medical history to explain their death. Um, they're all their medications are accounted for, and the numbers are correct so that they didn't overdose or anything like that. Um, we will go out simply for the fact that. We have to make sure that we do not miss anything. We have to make sure that this is an 80-year-old man who was, you know, at home. He had a cardiac arrest, possibly fell onto the floor, that his wife didn't harm him, that she didn't over-medicate him. Um, I have to physically know that the body um, has no trauma to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we will respond out to those scenes just... To be sure, um, even if we do believe that it was a natural death.
1: Deneen, how is it even possible then that there are only 2,500 of you in the country? That is mind blowing to me. For people listening that are bad at math, like me, because I just pulled out my calculator to double check, that's only 50 per state. And like I imagine a state like California, where I live, probably has closer to like 100 of them, and a state like Alaska probably has like six. But nevertheless, i can't even fathom only a hundred being in California, or however ma- I'm sure you know the exact number in in Florida um, <laughs> yeah it's just We're, crazy
0: not every um not every state utilizes us, not every county utilizes us uh, coroners certainly go out on their own um, there are other smaller um, smaller counties that that absolutely absolutely the doctor will go out um you know this is something that is a necessity for us because of the number of people in our county and the width and size clearly um that we are you know just another um, resource for the forensic pathologist
1: so how many of um, there uh, how many of you are there in your county
0: so there are six of us
1: and how populated is your county
0: uh, I think we're Oh, over a million.
1: Wow, crazy. Like yes. how how many how many calls are you responding to personally on one day?
0: Okay, um good question. That could be anywhere from 0 to I think 7 or 8 wow. sometimes. Um we do not respond to the hospital um unless there are unusual circumstances if um Someone passes away who was not admitted. Then, then yes, we will go out to the hospital. Hmm. Um, but other than that, it, it usually is, um, you know, responding out to um, to scenes. Um, there are different. There are five manners of death: so a natural accident, suicide, homicide, and then something we list as undetermined. Um, so. Those manners are what, you know, we're responding to um, and to clarify.
1: What would be undetermined?
0: Undetermined would be, like I spoke about earlier, if um, it, you know, is up to the doctor's discretion, if a mother um, has an overlay situation where it absolutely you know, was an accident, there was no intent to harm, um, to not place blame on mother, uh, we usually will list that as undetermined. But also, if we, um, if there are bones discovered or skeletal remains discovered that have no trauma, that we have done no tests that we have done all our testing on and simply cannot find a reason because we have very little to work with, then yes, that would be listed as undetermined.
1: Okay. So I want to go over determining the manner of death for a couple of different circumstances. One Mm -hmm. uh, would be a little more uh, easy, I guess, let's say. And then the other one would be a little bit more like obscure. So um, but they're both a little obscure. So let's say that that, uh, a dead body is found like outdoors in just kind of like the middle of nowhere. How do you determine the manner of death for a body like that?
0: Okay. So, if we get a call um, of a person in a field, um, uh, it, it certainly could be a multitude of reasons. Um, they could have a gunshot wound to their head uh, or chest, um, multiple gunshot wounds. Um, they may not have any trauma that's visible to us. Um, I can, you know, certainly do my examination, and if I don't see anything apparent. Um there are a multitude of other ways to find that out. We run toxicology we have a toxicology lab, um, so we will run their blood and test that for multiple things, including mm-hmm. poisons and um, also narcotics um any any you know foreign sub- substance like that um, also on physical exam, um, you know we may not see anything traumatic when when I do my exam, but when we, you know, get the decedent back and the forensic pathologist does her exam or his exam, uh, they might find something. uh, Maybe an aneurysm in the head, uh, um, an artery that's completely blocked, um, you know, pulmonary embolism. Certainly there are other things that we may not see just on physical exam.
1: Okay. So then the other piece that I would like to know about the manner of death is, let's say you find a body in the water or something. How the heck can you possibly determine if that was a suicide or a homicide? Like, even if it's right beneath a bridge or something, you don't know that somebody didn't push someone off a bridge to make it look like a suicide. You know, like, so how how do you go about trying to determine? uh, Yeah, like the cause of death.
0: We, d- we work very closely with law enforcement, so we rely on them for their investigation. We also do our own investigation, and those things work hand in hand. So, uh, for instance, um, I responded to a scene where a man had tied a cinder block to his belt loop and walked into Tampa Bay um, to the point where he was underwater. And the next day, a paddleboarder going by saw the top of his head. Um when we used the dive team for Hillsborough County Sheriffs to retrieve him out of the water, um he had a suicide note in a Ziploc bag. Um also in his pants pocket um were some medicines. Um but that note was very detailed. Um his intent clearly was to do what he did. Um On physical exam, you know, the weight was in there, Um, you know, law enforcement rules out, did anybody possibly throw him over a boat or, uh, you know, anything that would have been, you know, circumstantial. They're they're also determining and doing their own investigation as well as ours.
1: Hmm, Interesting. So what is it like when you're working a case? I assume this happens where you're working a case that is supposedly a suicide that was like called in by maybe a family member or something as a suicide. Mm -hmm. And as you're working it, you start to suspect that this may actually be a homicide. Uh,
0: That happens. That absolutely happens. It happened to me. um, It happened to me not too long ago. Um, I, responded to a scene, uh, where a woman, um, hung herself, uh, in her daughter's bedroom closet and, um, she used, uh, her daughter's belt. The daughter was away at college, but, uh, when I got to the scene, um, I got more information that the husband and wife had been in a very heated argument, um, over a traffic accident she had had during, earlier in the day, and um, detectives were a little, uh, you know, nervous about his interview. On initial interview, um, he had very high emotion swings and very apathetic one moment. So uh, when I got upstairs um, examining her and how she was in the closet,
1: wait, sorry to interrupt really quick here. All that, all that stuff that you just said about the interview and this and that are are things. If the if the police force thinks that something suspicious is possibly happening, do they tell you that before you look at a body, or do they want you to be an absolutely blank slate when you see the body, so they don't give you any info until after you've seen it?
0: It could go either way. It certainly could go either way. Um, on that particular uh, day, the detective had already interviewed um, the husband, and um, when we all walked upstairs so that I could do my exam, she said, you know, I'm not comfortable with the way um, his response is. And, you know, taking into consideration her years of experience, because um, everyone responds differently to deaths. Uh, So, you could have someone who is not crying, not emotional, and that's normal, too. So, you know, you don't take, you kind of, you know, pay attention to those things. Um, My job was to make sure that the way she was in the closet was certainly something she did herself and that not, you know, she was not placed there um, or put there by the husband. So um, I had a few concerns when I um, got the decedent down from the post in the closet and the clothes uh, bar. And um, she did have a few marks, That I couldn't explain Um, indentations in her shoulder that almost looked like a thumb mark. Um, And I was not comfortable um, with determining that that was the way she was in the closet and that she had placed herself that way. So I did make a call. Um, I I initially uh, sent some pictures in to our office and had the uh, other two investigators look them over as well. They felt the same, that there was enough concern that um, it warranted a physician coming out. Our chief medical examiner did come out and she's, you know, she agreed that they were something that she wanted to look at closer. Um, At that point, um, law enforcement does get a warrant. Um, They have to get a warrant and everybody is cleared from the scene. And we bring the body in at that point. They do a further investigation, and then we do our own medical investigation. And in that particular case, it did turn out that she was able to do that herself and that they did determine she did do that herself. Um, But you're always erring on the side of caution. It's unnerving to, to bring that to light because you are making an accusation, but it, you are the voice of this decedent and you need to make sure that what you're seeing is absolutely, um, you know, something that needs to be looked into further to wow. protect the family. It,
1: of course. Like what in that instance was there like a, a nail in the coffin, as it were, that made it made it be like, OK, yeah, this, this woman did, in fact, commit suicide. What like what was the main thing?
0: You take into the, the, um, the social aspects, also the under, other interviews, interviews that I did um, with others that were in the home, other um, family members, um, the situation in the family, their social situation, what had been going on. Um, she did have past suicide attempts, um, which weighs heavy um, in determining that as well, and also recreating you know, uh, measuring the belt, measuring the belt to the closed rod. Um, is that something she could have affixed herself with? Um, there are many, many factors that, that fall into that category.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Um if you could give us another like story like that for this next question, that would be great because it's really helpful to walk through something like that um, sure. about trying to determine whether something was an accident or a suicide.
0: Absolutely, um, accident versus suicide. We ha- we have a lot of those because um, uh, we have a lot of narcotic overdose um, and heroin overdose. So, determining whether it was an accidental overdose as opposed to a suicide, um, certainly that's where a lot of our toxicology comes in. We want to know how much that person took um, of their medication. If, If they were a user all along and then, you know, today they mixed a few other medicines or they had... Taken some medications, forgot they took them, and then took more, and their death was a result of that. Absolutely, that's an accident. If there's an absence of a note, um, and they only have a certain level of that narcotic in their system, but it was enough to cause their death, again, it, it's an accidental overdose. Suicide notes are very key for us. We don't always have them, but they certainly are. And level of toxicity in the blood of, of that particular, um, you know, narcotic or, or substance that they're using.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that would have to be the primary one. It's just how much did this person take of this thing?
0: Absolutely. If I respond to a scene and there, um, for instance, they had um, a narcotic that was filled the day before uh, for thirty pills, and those are completely gone, and that's a you know that would speak volumes to me. Um, if if they've abused some and maybe they took five a day instead of the recommended dose of two a day. Well, then that, you know, constitute an accidental overdose.
1: Okay, interesting. Um, Any like PSA that we should give people here about overdosing on pills? You just mentioned two a day to five a day. Do you really see cases like that where somebody only took a few more than the recommended amount and they died because of it?
0: Not just a few more. I I would say if you were prescribed... Two a day, and you were taking upwards of ten to twelve a day, in in excess. That w- that would be a problem if you're mixing those with other drugs. Um, and, and and certainly, again, a lot of our information is background information. Um, were they going to several doctors to get several different prescriptions? Um, that. That also happens a lot um, so that one doctor does not know how much they're, you know, if they're giving them an appropriate amount of narcotics for whatever their ailment is or their physical condition. Um, But then they go to an emergency room or they go to another physician in a nearby town and they Tell their story again and say, I've got this back pain and I have these problems. They will get another prescription. So those are also things I take into consideration. How many narcotics do they have and how many different doctors have prescribed them? Um, You know, that, that sets a pattern.
1: Is that still a big deal in, in Florida? I remember like back in the day seeing a news piece on like frontline or something about pain clinics in Florida and everything. Is that is that still legal there? Like for people to is it easier for people to get pain pills in Florida than anywhere else?
0: There are pain management um, offices still out there, but they certainly have cracked down on that. And I think, um, you know, certainly there are people out there that are wise to that. And instead of staying at that one particular pain management physician, are going to others. Um, It's not a linked system, you know. So, they certainly can go to another physician and say, you know, I have these back problems and I, you know, they're just... Uh, something that i need some form of narcotic for and 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 it's it's harder than it was before but it's still you know something that they is attainable to them yeah
1: okay so uh i guess i think this is the last question while still kind of on this topic of uh accident or on purpose or whatever Mm -hmm. what about like a sex-related death like erotic asphyxiation um can the living party in that case ever be charged with a crime so let's say um even if it wasn't like a full outright murder there's obviously the whole entire thing of like hey at a certain point this person's starting to lose consciousness you as the living party need to know where to draw the line between like this is uh this is how we usually have sex and this is fun or whatever and this is kind of crossing a line um, is that kind of up to you to help determine if any crime should be charged and, and can a crime be charged or if that is kind of um, the case Is it always ruled an accident?
0: Uh, certainly. I mean, that, that is really, that's where law enforcement comes in. Um, because that wouldn't, that would be something that law enforcement would determine whether they're going to bring charges. Um, if it was something that was a normal act for both parties and they were both willing and this was an accidental death because they were both willing parties, that's something that would, um, maybe not constitute charges. However, if, um, you know, uh, we, Certainly there are times, um, we had a case not too long ago, um, where two 18 year olds were having consensual sex in a motel room and the boyfriend took out a gun, um, to kind of ramp up their sexual activity and thought it was not loaded, held it up and it fired and, um, you know, his girlfriend was killed.
1: Oh my um, God, no way! He
0: didn't necessarily have the intent, um, but that portion is really rested on law enforcement. Um, yeah, because we we still
1: have. That's what's so interesting about a case like that. Is that we have third degree murder and stuff for those reasons, right? Absolutely. Like that, that you you maybe didn't mean to kill someone, but you still took someone's life, so there Involuntear- is a sentence for that, right?
0: Right. An involuntary manslaughter would fall under those charges if charges were brought, um, and and that's up to their portion of the investigation. We certainly, um, you know, rely on them um, as far as uh, for us. No matter what, it's a homicide because another person has killed another person. Um, I mean, you can't, that's not a suicide. That's not an, you know, even if it were an accident, one person is still um, killing another person. Um, So that is a homicide, whether it was voluntary, you know, or involuntary or however law enforcement wants to label it as far as their charges or what ensues with them
1: interesting um let's move on a little bit to something a little bit different so talk about determining identification at the scene when a body is like really decomposed really damaged How, how are you figuring out who this person is
0: um we we live in florida clearly it's a very hot muggy state um certainly uh if Not all parties have air conditioning on if the decedent is in a mobile home or a trailer and they don't have air conditioning. If they were last seen alive, uh, maybe 48 hours, 72 hours prior, but they have no air conditioning on and we're in August, it speeds up the process of insect activity and decomposition. So we we do have a lot. That we deal with here um, that are decomposed. I was just out on a scene um, last Friday um, on five acres of land that had water buffalo on it, strangely, and there was a deceased, decomposed body. Um, the man was living in a tent, renting um, renting a lot um, underneath what would have been a barn shed, an open air barn shed that was in a hoarding situation. So there were a lot of um, old farm equipment, trash, things like that. Um, he was an alcoholic. He had hallucinated um, because he wasn't drinking enough and text his mother that he had heard voices around him and he was in fear Um, that somebody was coming to get him and he crawled under an abandoned old non-working truck, um, under that particular shed and he was not seen for six days. Um, so he was under the truck, uh, decomposed. She called out law enforcement for a missing persons report. Law enforcement did do a search of the property and did not smell him or see him, um, so the next day, because it had gotten dark, they carried on their search the next day, and they did discover him. That day, um, they saw his feet sticking out from underneath the truck once they moved some of the rubble. So I was called out on that. Um, he was fully de- decomposed with insect activity. Um, so because of the hoarding situation, I crawled as far under the truck that I could fit, um, to see and judge how I would get him out and retrieve him. Um, he was bloated. So that's up so to you.
1: that's not up to somebody else to do.
0: Correct. Um, I do have a transport team that helps me in removal um, but they you know were on scene standing by and I was the smallest person to crawl <laughs> under the truck so um, I crawled under to see how I would r- retrieve him best without having um another agency intervene for us. Um,
1: so just to clarify, you crawl under the truck with the decomposing body with the insects all over it. Yes. Are are so insects is like my biggest fear in the world. Are are you are you like uh, just a pretty tough cookie when it comes to all this stuff or, or do you get grossed out ever?
0: Um I'm rarely grossed out. Feces? Feces I don't I'm not a fan of, but decomposed bodies, I, it doesn't really bother me. Um, wow. and I'm just mindful to keep my mouth closed so that I don't get flies in my mouth or things that were on the body that start getting airborne. So, Definitely. um, but yeah, so once I crawled under there, I noticed that he had, was so bloated that there was no clearance between, um, him and the underneath, the undercarriage of the truck, so that I was going to need another agency to help me lift that truck off him. Um, Fire Rescue came out. They used heavy equipment and lifted the truck up about two to three feet enough that I could um, get under there, um, tie some sheets around his shoulders, because if you don't, sometimes you can remove limbs. They can come off easily. Um, so you want a good anchored system to get him out intact. Um, and uh, I crawled under there, and with my help of my transport team, we pulled him out into a body bag. And speaking on identification, um, he had been there about four days in the elements, um, so he was not able to be viewed by family or determined, even though Mom believed that that was her you know, adult son. Um, so what we do is I will go back to the office. Um, on scene, I'll talk to mother. Had he had any x-rays at the hospital recently? Had he been to the dentist? Um, did he ever have fingerprints on file with law enforcement? Um, his fingerprints were not good because of the conditions he was in and how far along he was decomposed. So I know that I was relying on x-rays and or uh, dentals to ID him. Um, she did tell me that he had been to a hospital a year prior. Um, I called them when I got back to the office and he did have chest x-rays um, on file. So our doctor will take those x-rays that we retrieve from the hospital. We take our own x x-rays to make sure that there are no bullet fragments things like that in the body and do full body x-rays for comparison purposes and then our doctor medically trained will compare those x-rays and do a legal identification that that definitely is that particular decedent
1: now this is probably a very naive question but is there no (laughs) way to just get dna immediately from the body and then get dna from the mom and that's that
0: No, it's a very long process and we have to rely on other agencies for that and it could take upwards of three to six months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, If we have skeletal remains, that's certainly what we use.
1: Okay. Interesting. Um,
0: But we work with other, you know, we have an anthropologist at USF who also helps recreate what they would have looked like, their age, things like that. Um, So we have help in that department if it's something to that effect. We also have disfigurements. Um, I was on a wrong way crash uh, scene where um, a car was going the wrong way on the highway and ran into an 18-wheeler. And there were three people in the vehicle that had such disfiguring injuries um, that we needed to have somebody out there to establish with photographs and physical description of who was where in the car, um, oddly because two sisters, one was the driver, one was the passenger, they were only 17 months apart in age, looked very similar um, in their photos and, and things like that. So we have to make sure that who we're IDing is exactly who was the driver, you know, who was the passenger, are these the accurate people, they are related, we want to make sure that we have who we have.
1: Hmm. Man, that's all. That's all so interesting. It sounds so difficult. I, I, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so earlier we talked about um, kind of starting to suspect something as maybe being a homicide versus a suicide. Sure. Have you more or less ever been the primary? person to end up putting someone in prison because of things that you found uh, is like part one of that question and part two is do you get called into court cases every now and then to testify
0: um interesting okay so i have never to this point had that happen for me but certainly the other investigators there have um some have been to court uh now we are more likely um we um the attorneys will come in and do a dep- uh, deposition with us, um, going over what we did on that particular scene, um, our notes, our scene notes, what we saw, who we interviewed, um, and and certainly um, if we are needed or it is necessary for us to respond to court, yes, we do go. Um, our county, in particular, um, because we are a valued resource, um, we, our doctors go to homicides. So even though we are trained um, in our county um, because we do have a high homicide rate, um, our doctors will respond because if they respond it is most likely that they will be going to court. And because it is so important for us to be in the office and to be able to be there and respond to scenes, it just works for, better for our county at the current moment because there's so few of us, we're not full staffed, that they go. Um, and in the near future, that may turn over and they may be able to, you know, hand that off to us again. Um, but for right now it hasn't. I had a child abuse case, um, that a lot of my notes were key in, um, determining that it was a homicide, um, and that particular gentleman did plead guilty, um, so I was not called into trial on that.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: But but the particular, um, uh, circumstances of that case and the physical evidence on the child, um you know, was something that that we definitely, a very interesting quick point. Our doctor could not figure out the marks on the back of this child's legs. Um, You know, it it was a very um, unique pattern. Um, We couldn't, you know, we all talked about it. Our physician had us come over to the morgue, uh, two investigators, myself and another. Um, We all looked at them kind of were trying to figure out what this could have been placed on the back of her legs, these um, scars, and um, our other investigator uh, determined that he realized all of a sudden that his cigarette lighter matched the pattern to the back of her legs. So he went over, got his cigarette lighter just out of the drawer, just a normal one that you could purchase at a gas station, And we held it over the scar, and it was almost a perfect, perfect match.
1: That's so terrible. So,
0: um, and then he, that, um, it happened to be the um, mother's boyfriend. He did admit on interview with law enforcement that he would start the lighter, get it very hot, and then hold it to the back of her legs, so um so how we're is it all- even
1: possible that things like that happen it's it's like I just, we all work so together unthinkable.
0: yeah we all work together and, and and we're all a valued resource we've all seen something or something's unique and we all work together to figure that out
1: yeah wow crazy um i guess now is a good time to ask this question since you like that story you just told is so sad and crazy um has this job changed your relationship to death? And then has this job changed your relationship to life?
0: I don't think it's changed my relationship to death. I think it certainly has changed my relationship to life. Um, uh, There, when, when you see this every day and there are no good outcomes, we don't have a good outcome. Um, it's every single day and it's a different circumstance every single time. Um, so you are dealing on a daily basis. Talking with not only the families on your own cases, but families on other people's cases, other investigators' cases that call in and maybe they're off that day and you need to take the ball and roll with it and get them on the path to getting their loved one laid to rest and hearing their stories. Um, a lot of family members just want to talk to you, tell you how they felt, what they did. Um, taking on that, that empathy and their feelings is very difficult. On a daily basis, um, so I think for me, um, it certainly has changed my my view on life. It's so important to embrace people who are positive and loving in your family and make every single day count because some of these things you know are just freak accidents that certainly could happen to anyone and you you really think about that
1: yeah, definitely, kind of a bizarre a bizarre, good thing to have in front of you on a daily basis.
0: yes, yes. Um, Yes, In a positive light.
1: Okay, cool. So let's go ahead and and wind this thing down for people. So uh, I'd like to give some advice to people thinking that they might want to do something like this. But just really quickly first, what does a job like this pay?
0: Um, last year, I made about $45,000 approximately. Um, and consider that, you know, that there's also overtime. Um, every single I can't county- believe that.
1: I can't believe there's 2,500 of you in the country and that the, that's the pay, that it's not like a supply and demand sort of thing. You know, like, <laughs> wow, there's only 2,500 of them. We need to pay them like $2 million each.
0: Oh my goodness. No. Well, I, like I said, not everybody utilizes us. Um, it's a very, very important job. Um, you know, but, but per county is, is certainly that money is different in each county. There's more funding. Um, you know, this is, we're a taxpayer service. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a public service job and, um, although it has its importance, you know, um, that's what our particular county is able to, uh, to pay.
1: Do you get benefits as a government job then? Um, certainly,
0: certainly. We have, you know, retirement and, and we, um, they pay a, a very large portion of our health insurance. Um, so, yeah, so you can be vested and, and you know, the longevity is there. And, and we don't really, and you would think, but we do not have a large burnout rate in this field. Um, so I I have supervisor, um, who's been there in excess of 12 years, another in excess of 15. Um, so this is, once you get into it, you, you kind of stay.
1: Yeah, I would imagine it's like such a heightened level of excitement compared to other jobs that it'd be hard to go to another one. So I guess one other piece of advice to touch on before you just give your advice on how someone get into a field like this would be. How often are the cases like kind of mysteries and exciting and, you know, you need to do all this detective work versus you really do get called in because there was just a cardiac arrest and that's it?
0: Um, I would say uh, there's a lot less less homicide that we deal with, but. There, you know, our our field, um, we're investigators. If um, a person passes away and they're of old age, but we find out that um, family has reported and hospital also, um, you know, has documentation that they had a fall, um, maybe a month prior to their death, and they were never ambulatory again. Well, some of the things that happen to your body, as far as sepsis and urinary tract infections and things that bed sores, things that would lead to your death, if you had never gotten that fall or fracture, um, then we have to get all those records. We have to determine, you know, was this an accident that certainly led to their death? Even though they're old age and they have medical history, if they never had this fall or fracture, maybe they would have. You know, gone on another five years. So, so it doesn't matter
1: how standard the cause of death is. There's still detective work that's going to go into it.
0: Correct. There's still investigation every single time. And, and, you know, certainly we have a lot of resources to do that. We find, um, we have a lot of homeless population in our county. Um, and certainly a lot of them, um, it's looking for families. We're investigators that look for families. We have huge resources um, as far as um, similar programs to law enforcement where we start looking for family members and um, we literally do not stop until we find someone, um, however, it may be. We have an on um, a genealogist who is full time. Uh, part-time and he works on the case after the investigator turns it over and has done their portion of, of searching and he will continue to look and, and luckily sometimes he finds someone and if he has gotten to the point where he can't, he turns it over to um, another resource called unclaimedbodies.org and they continue um, on a nonprofit. Profit basis and continue to search for family to let them know what happened to their family member and that, you know, um, maybe we have cremated them or placed their ashes out to sea and where they are. And, and so there's a lot of investigative work, not just for homicide, suicides, et cetera. Hmm,
1: cool. That's awesome. Um, yeah. All right. So, yeah, let's finish it out then. Uh, if anybody is listening to this and they're like, wow, that sounds really cool and like something I would like to do, there's, I mean, there's only 2,500 of you guys, so how, how would you recommend somebody become one of you, and then I guess if there's any similar things maybe that someone could do?
0: Sure. there. Um, you really have to have a strong criminology background or medical background. Um, we have a lot of people who were EMTs and paramedics. We also have people um, who investigators who in the past were crime scene investigators. Um, So there's a nice, you know, you want to have a nice background, some form of background that would be either criminology or medical field. Um, But a lot of this is on-site and on-the-job training. You're never going to come into circumstances like that unless you are in the job. Um, And and that's why it takes a year to train. Um, It's a very, very hard thing to get into, um, because there are not many of us and, and, and we are not all that utilized. Um, but certainly having that background, um, we work with so many agencies that would afford the same type of job. Um, we work with organ donation agencies who, um, have to have our permission. Um, if it's a case under our jurisdiction and they would like all organs donated and they'd like to approach the family well that's something that our doctor has to approve and once they have then then that organ agency lifelink will will start the ball rolling get with the family um offer them that that you know service and um we work together with them so that's another way of getting into this field um as well as lion's eye bank um who do donation of corneas um so, there are, there are many facets to our field. We work closely with law enforcement. That's another way to get into this field. Um, crime scene investigation. So, any kind of a criminology background um, or, or health or medical background would do that.
1: All right. Cool. Well, Denine, thank you so much for the advice. Thank you so much for this interview and it, it, I, for writing in and suggesting to do, like, I am, I am thrilled to be able to do this. I'm probably going to think of like a million questions when we're done that I wish I would have asked you, but I feel like I got a really good overview. So thank you so much for this. It's been awesome.
0: Oh, you're welcome. It's, it's a lot of content to whittle down. So hopefully I provided enough that you all have an idea of what I do on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, you definitely, definitely did. Thanks, Denise.
0: Okay. Thank you.
1: Hey everyone, it's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on the show. Then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.